0: Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones, a recent law graduate and incoming postgraduate student in law.
1: And I'm your co-host, Clara Tocqueville, a recent law graduate and incoming trainee solicitor. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and passionate about the intersections of law and feminism. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Tania Cerizier, reader in feminist theory in the Department of Criminology at the University of Birkbeck and researcher in the field of gender, cultural and socio-legal studies, as well as criminology. Um, Actually, in the 1993 skit from Saturday Night Live, um, you argue that it mocked affirmative consent, um, Mm -hmm. and that one depicted the complexity behind consent, whereas the Thames Valley police um, clip from 2015 depicted the simplicity behind consent. So we've obviously witnessed a progression um, and a change um, from 1993 to 2015. Um, So I was wondering how you compare, contrast, and draw conclusions between um, the 1993 clip and the 2015 consent video?
2: Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we've touched on this a little bit. I think one of the interesting things is that, and I mentioned this briefly at the beginning, you know, they're both periods of change around sex and sexual norms, you know. So in the 1990s, you had for the first time, you know, feminists and student activists bringing up this idea of date rape it's really where the term comes from and really challenging the idea that you know the picture of sexual violence is not the stranger in the bushes you know the picture of sexual violence for most people is someone that they know even someone they're in a relationship with so that's a huge kind of moment in um, public culture not just in the us but also in countries like the uk and australia where i'm from and it you know produces a lot of anxiety and backlash I think we're in a very similar moment here, and we have been for quite some time, because obviously, I mean, to me, it's it's strange to think, but 2015 is eight years ago now. But, you know, the mid-2010s kind of 2010s were a period where we saw a lot of activism in different forums. Around that time, there was a lot of student activism around the problem of sexual violence on campus, um, and that was part of the reason that the video was created. Um, A big context for the release of the video in the UK was a very um, famous rape trial of a footballer, Chad Evans, who essentially claimed that, you know, he didn't know that the woman who'd made the complaint wasn't consenting, even though she'd given no indication that she was. And that was where, because the video itself is based on a cartoon by a feminist blogger And so the feminist blogger was talking about this particular case, you know, and she was pointing out that Chet Evans and his defense team were essentially trying to make out, you know, understanding consent was so impossible in this particular example. And she was saying, well, no, you know, in that case, it was pretty obvious, you know, you just didn't want to know. Um, And then, obviously, we have in the years following that video, which I think is part of the same cultural moment a lot of online activism leading to Me Too. So again, you know, it's a point in society where people are thinking about sexual violence and thinking about it being a problem, maybe in new ways or even more of a problem than they thought. And so looking for solutions. And I think that's what kind of joins the two things. But they're very different moments in, as you said, in the question, in one of them, the response is, oh, well, consent, you know, it's just so complicated it's really stupid to think that you can you know do anything about it like this idea of affirmative consent doesn't understand how people really are you know and so you had all these apart from the Saturday night live clip you had all kinds of other things you know feminists want to be kind of police in your bedroom and if you don't ask someone before you kiss them they want to come in and arrest you you know that it's ridiculous. Um, What we have now though I think is a situation where it's almost the opposite where we say well you know it's so simple people should just get it and one of the things that I talk about in the article is the problem with that is it makes it sound almost like you know as a society we've solved the problem it's really simple it's just like drinking tea there's just these maybe these few other people who don't get it who don't understand and we just need to give them this video and tell them you know it's just like drinking tea it's simple you just need to understand when actually we know that as a society we very much haven't solved the problem of sexual violence you know we know that between 1 to 3 and 1 to 4 women and actually you know far larger numbers of men than's often been imagined experience sexual violence we know that many people experience sexual experiences that You know, sometimes they describe as, you know, grey rape or grey sex, where they're not even really sure, you know, if what has happened to them, you know, is illegal, but they know that it wasn't good, you know. And these experiences are very common. So in a way, the kind of almost very reassuring, straightforward message of the Thames Valley Police video that sex is, you know, consent is just simple. It's just like tea. Is a way of avoiding the problem, and that's that's the concern that I have with it. You know, even though, um, and if you ever see the Saturday Night Live video, it, it is awful. You know, it's kind of the way it makes fun of feminism, the way it almost makes fun of date rape. You know, what I say basically is, at least there was an acknowledgement that there was a real problem here that was difficult to deal with. You know, and we can't lose side of that and kind of pretending things are simpler than they are is a way of not acknowledging how serious a problem they are and how much actual attention as a society we still need to pay to it
0: yeah I think you raise um some really interesting points especially when you talk about like kind of like the more gray areas like I think about for example like when women go to nightclub nightclubs and they're they're grabbed on the bottom by men in the club and you know they're told you should just expect that because you know you're going to a nightclub like what do you think is going to happen but obviously like they they feel like it's wrong but they're like was that really an assault because I feel like that's just something I should expect when I go to a club so you raise a really interesting point that yeah like there are these areas where obviously like these women don't consent to being touched like that but it is really complicated because they also don't feel like it's to a point where they could you know, phone the police about it, for example, they feel like maybe there's no point to that, even though it is really technically wrong. So I think you raised some really interesting points there. Um, so given that it actually kind of is sort of complex, do you think that legislation is useful or necessary when it comes to consent? And if you do, then what types of laws do you think should be impl- implemented to prevent the sort of date rape jeopardy that you've talked about in, in your article?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a kind of an ongoing, an ongoing problem. I mean, I think the first thing to say about this is that what's very clear is that legal change cannot be the sole or even the primary arena of um, preventing sexual violence and particularly as you're saying, you know, things that many people would never consider calling the police about. So, you know, that's obvious. The second thing is that we have had decades and decades now of attempts to reform the laws around sexual violence and one of the big areas that's been changed is exactly how we legally define consent and you know unfortunately there's no evidence to show that these legal changes have been successful in either preventing sexual violence and having the rates of sexual violence go down or in changing the proportion of sexual violence experiences or complaints that succeed through the legal system, you know, make it to the point of prosecution and conviction. So, all of which is to say is I think clearly we do need laws around sexual violence, you know, and we need legislation that can act as, you know, people talk about the law in this area being symbolic as much as anything else, and we do need a clear kind of standard of you know, sexual behavior below which is socially unacceptable. You know, and consent at the moment is the main way we have of thinking about that, this. I mean, some people have suggested there might be other better concepts than consent. What I think about it is that for whatever's going to go into law, it's always going to be limited because, you know, the law is a kind of, you know, it's, um, it's a blunt tool. You know, the criminal law is really about preventing you know in some ways it's always going to be about things that are very black and white and this is where i think we need to think beyond legal change what's going to make legal change effective is if you have social changes to back it up and and so you know there there are some basic examples there um, where cultures have changed these might sound a little bit random they're not about sex, but um you know we've been talking about tea drinking as well, but you know some. Some really successful examples that have um, matched legal and cultural change is the introduction of compulsory seatbelts you know in cars and when driving and the changes more recently around um, smoking in indoor venues and places where food and drink are served. and the reason that those have both worked in terms of being legally um, enforceable is because, and it took a bit longer with seatbelts and with smoking, but there were campaigns to bring in social changes around that as well. So that you know people no longer think it's a good thing to not wear a seatbelt. And we might think about drink driving as well. You know, There's been a profound generational shift where it's not only that people know that drink driving is illegal, But if you ask most people below the age of 40, they think it's the wrong thing to do. And, you know, to go to your example of kind of being in a nightclub, you know, and being groped, what we need is, you know, yes, probably ways of enforcing that through the legal system. But I would say more importantly, you know, a wider circle of people who think that's a wrong thing to do, you know, and the question is how we get to that and I think the law is one element of that, but it's never going to be the main element. And what becomes difficult with sex (laughs) is that, you know, unlike tea drinking, unlike seat belts, unlike, you know, drink driving, it is an area of our lives that there's a lot of taboo around. It's a very personal area of our lives. You know, it's something that primarily takes place in private, you know, it's something that We've only really kind of introduced any form of sex education around things, even like condoms and safe sex, in the last 30 or 40 years in schools. There's still a lot of resistance around it. So we're not very good at talking about or educating about sex generally, you know, let alone this particular, you know, problem of then what does it mean to actually behave, you know. In an ethical or a caring way towards someone that you're having sex with or as you say even in a sexualized space like a nightclub you know so one reading you know which is the kind of i suppose conservative reading is something like you know groping someone in a nightclub is just you know it's a sexual space it's a way of expressing sex and sexuality but you know there are better ways of doing it you know there are ways that can be reciprocal, there are ways that don't make one very large group of people, you know, feel that they're treated like objects or treated like objects. And so I think that we need, we really need to focus a lot more energy on things beyond and outside the law. Even if we think, yes, you know, there are a few basic changes we can make in the law that are part of that, but the bigger question is, you know, how do we change what people think is wrong and is you know socially and culturally unacceptable and that's a really tricky thing in this area it's very difficult.
0: Yeah if I could if I could maybe uh, um, give like a follow-up question to that because I'm wondering your thoughts on you know consent in the context of not just sexual encounters but like everyday encounters especially for children because you think about like you know like four-year-old children who you know see perhaps a family member that they don't see very often and the family member who's sort of a stranger says oh like give your aunt jenny a hug and they're like well who's aunt jenny why do i have to hug you and the parents are kind of just encouraging oh just give her a hug like you know like just encouraging the child to kind of not respect their own Boundaries when it comes to who's allowed to interact with their bodies, and and what's your take on on that aspect of consent?
2: Well, you know, going back going back to the article, I think it, I think it's a really interesting question, and I think that it's again, it's slightly more complicated than um, we sometimes think about it, because there are you know there are competing needs, like absolutely. You want especially young children to feel that, you know, not only are they comfortable with interactions that they have, but other people are not able to do things to them and their bodies that they don't want, you know? That's completely, you know, important. On the other hand, um, we do have to engage with other people in social situations in ways that we don't want to you know, and I raised the, you know, I raised the point of um, a job interview, you know, if you're an adult, you go to a job interview, the person interviewing you offers to shake your hand, they reach your hand up, you don't really want to shake their hand, you know, that's going to have all kinds of consequences for you if you don't <laughs> shake their hand. Um, and so there are also, you know, important Kind of cultural rituals and bonding rituals around not only handshaking but hugging you know as adults and so the question is i think with that particular example how do we enable children to navigate their situations in ways that they can you know recognize and understand what's being asked and expected of them and why but in a way that also maximizes you know their levels of comfort and control over what they do and I think you know I think it's not quite so simple as you know everyone is just their own person and you know if you don't want someone to touch you they can't touch you because that then doesn't really help us with other kinds of breaches of intimacy you know another thing that people do you know is ask inappropriate questions that can make someone feel just as uncomfortable as being touched. Um, And so it's about thinking of it even more broadly and thinking how do we actually equip children and also equip each other to think differently and better about the kinds of boundaries that we have with each other. And that's why I mentioned before, um, some of the educational programs that have been rolled out in places like Australia. And there's an Australian academic called Moira Carmody, who does a lot of excellent work on this. And it's precisely about starting from a very young age with children and getting them to think about what they want from other people, what other people want from them, you know, and even beyond things like, you know, hugging, you know, lots of conversation about, you know, do you have to share your toys? You know, those kinds of things, like what happens when someone asks you to do that and not, and, you know, recognizing that we have to interact with other people, and part of that means sometimes doing things we don't want to do, but equipping, you know, young people especially to, you know, have limits and boundaries on that, as well as to navigate it. So I think you're right, like, I think it's absolutely important that we think about these things in a continuum That includes things like, you know, Aunt Jenny you've never seen before wanting to sweep in and give you a hug, but also, you know, even beyond just kind of physical contact.
1: That's an excellent point. Thank you for answering that question. Um, And I completely agree with you. It is a lot more than just legal change. Um, It is also a social attitude change that needs to happen. It is difficult to achieve. But you've also mentioned examples such as the no smoking indoors and wearing seatbelts, which have changed over time. Um, So I suppose it is possible with consent. So along that vein, what solution do you suggest going forward to educate people about consent? Um, And do you think that videos, such as the 2015 um, Tea and Consent video we've been discussing here are useful, or do you think they'll simply be mocked um, and their message perhaps undermined?
2: Well, I think I mean just to kind of to talk about the video, like I think the video has, you know, as I've mentioned, I think the video has a lot of problems. Like I, I'm critical of presenting, you know, the way it does consent as very simple. But having said that, um, a piece of work that I'd like to do in the future is kind of going into classrooms because the video is used a lot and um seeing the ways that it does and doesn't provoke conversations, and I think that's the thing. Like, if it can be used as an opening, and a number of people i have spoken to who are educators have said, you know, that's the thing, you know, that sometimes when they teach with it, it's very kind of, um, the students are just like, yes, yes, whatever, you know, and nothing goes anywhere. If you can use it to spur kind of deeper engagement and conversations, then that's useful. So I think that something like a kind of three minute video it's only ever going to be useful as part of that broader project, Um, but I think making these kinds of questions and conversations more and more a part of our day-to-day reality is important. So in that sense, the fact that the video, you know, went viral, was used in all kinds of educational institutions, but also shared on social media, you know, led people to talk to each other, Um, and you can say the same thing about um more kind of um, static, I guess, public education thing. So I live in London, there's been for the last six to 12 months. A big campaign on the tube, asking people to think about bystander intervention, you know, essentially, if someone's harassing someone on the tube sexually or otherwise, what might you do. And in and of themselves, I think you could make a lot of criticisms of the posters, but you know, in the fact that they are in the tube, you know, that you see people, see them, talk to the person that they're sitting next to about them, it's really useful that they're there and that they prompt. And I think, so I suppose, you know, I, I think it's about thinking, <laughs> just as beyond the law, it's about thinking more um, more socially, more dynamically about how cultural change happens. So something like a YouTube video is always going if it's seen in as an end of itself, then I don't think it's a very good video. If you can bring it into broader context where there's different perspectives on these questions, where people are actually asking themselves, you know, well, that interaction I had the other week, you know, do I think that it was okay? You know, do I think I behaved well? Do I think the other person behaved well? And you can use things as a prompt like that, then I think, you can start to see changes, um, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's just like I was saying before, it's difficult in the area of sex and sexuality, um, but it's not impossible, um, and it's not that we haven't seen any changes at all. I mean, a good example is that it's much more normal and acceptable now to see not only um, heterosexual, but also same sex um, expressions of intimacy, both in public, you know, there's a lot of evidence that shows even in kind of family or other kind of semi-public, semi-private situations, whereas, you know, that was a lot more taboo, even kind of 15, 20 years ago, it's become a lot more, people are a lot more culturally aware they don't think it's a weird thing, that's a change and that's important, you know, because visibility of different ways of interacting lets us see, you know, that other ways of interacting are possible. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's a complex issue. So no, I don't think kind of just more YouTube videos is the answer, but I think the fact that there is more public debate, engagement, discussion about these issues is important.
0: Thank you for that yeah and I mean given the complexities that exist surrounding consent do you think that consent is enough or perhaps that consent is kind of the best metric by which we measure measure these these interactions or do you think there's an, an alternative to that?
2: Yeah I think um I don't think it's enough I think that's I think that's very clear um and there's a there's a Book by an academic from America Joe Fisher called screw consent which kind of looks at exactly why consent isn't enough and I think that one of the problems with consent and again we can link this to the Thames Valley police video is that we expect it to solve all these problems um, so there's not going to be a single kind of metric or criteria or concept that's going to let us say, you know, if we just get this right, then everyone's going to have good sex and, you know, no one's going to have harmful or painful sex. So it may be, you know, the best mechanism for use in the criminal law, you know, as a basic kind of standard below which, you know, things are unacceptable, both legally and socially. I think in terms of promoting positive ethics of sexuality, it needs to be a much more um, a much more rich discussion. And I think it's a shame that we often only talk about consent when we talk about trying to you know either prevent sexual violence or trying to, you know have positive experiences of sexuality or get away from those kind of gray experiences or gray zones because I think what's obvious, is on its own, it doesn't get us there and we need a richer conversation.
1: That's a very good point, thank you for that. Um, so as we wrap up, if our listeners would like to learn more about your research and the evolution and importance of consent, um, where could they do so please?
2: Um, well, if they Google me, they will find my university webpage. It's is probably easier. Um, you know, so my name is Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A. Serisier, S-E-R-I-S-I-E-R, and if you Google me with Birkbeck, which is where I work, um, you'll find me, you can also look me up on Twitter, I'm at Tanya Serisier, and that's probably the best place. Um, One of the good things that's happened in the academy in the UK in the last few years is there's more of an emphasis on open access publications, so if you find my personal page at Birkbeck, you can actually download most of my articles, even the ones that are in journals that are usually paywalled. So.
0: Wonderful. Um, thank you so much for joining
3: us on the podcast okay. today. We really appreciate your insights.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
3: In today's Feminist News Roundup, musician Lizzo has been sued, along with her production company, by some of her former dancers for a number of things, including sexual harassment, discrimination and false imprisonment. Also in today's news roundup, a new commemorative $1 coin, also known as a loonie, featuring aeronautical engineer and women's rights activist Elsie McGill, has been put into circulation. The coin, designed by Claire Watson, features McGill, who was the first Canadian woman to practice as an engineer. Meanwhile in Wales, female paramedics are sharing their experiences of sexual harassment at work, with one woman telling the BBC that she, quote, expects to be sexualised, end quote, by her co-workers whilst at work. Finally, the FDA in the United States has approved its first pill, zurin alone, to treat postpartum depression, a condition faced by 10 to 15% of women during pregnancy or following birth, according to the New York Times.
0: If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email
1: at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from
0: pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.